We're going to continue in our sinking series this morning. But first, I have a question for you. How many of you have the physical capacity to be able to raise your hand? All right. Still only half of you. Great. Good to know. All right. We're going to be doing a lot of polling this morning. And so I just wanted you to get that little bit of exercise uh, of raising your hand. Just want to see how many of us are willing to raise our hands. Half of us. Okay. So we'll be working from a 50% polling capacity here. But we have a lot of questions this morning. How many of you have known Christ for less than one year? You've been in a relationship with Jesus for less than a year. Okay. How many of you less than five years, you would say, you've been in a relationship with Jesus? All right. No hands yet. <clears throat> Church, that's a problem. How many of you 10 years or less you've known Jesus, been in a relationship with Jesus? Okay, we got a, got a hand. How many of you say, would say 20 years or less you have known Jesus? Okay. A few more hands. Uh, 30 years or less, you've known Jesus, okay? I think this is, yeah, this is my turn to raise my hand. Uh, 30 years or less, I've known Jesus, okay? Any of you have known Jesus for more than 50 years? Okay, that's a lot, that's the most hands, all right? We got some work to do, church, all right? Next time I ask this question, I want there to be a lot of hands in the one year, all right? That would be awesome, right? Okay, I didn't know if I was the only one that felt that way. All right, me and, me and Russ. Uh, that, I think that would be awesome. Okay, so what I wanted us to do is to understand that a lot of us have known Jesus for a while. We've been in relationship with Jesus for some time. The majority of us have known Jesus for more than 20 years. That's pretty significant, uh, if, if that's true of us. Um, so how many of you would say that God has never disappointed you? Okay. Okay. A couple hands. My question is, really? God has never disappointed you. See, because if I'm being honest, he has definitely disappointed me. But I would say that has a lot more to do with me than with his character. Because I don't think God has ever failed me, but my expectations of God, my perspective has been such that I have been disappointed with Him. That's more, I guess, the accurate way to say it. Um, so for those of you that have, God has never disappointed you, man, I wish I had your faith because uh, I've been many times in my life where I sat and argued with God and we had it out a little bit because I was disappointed in him. I was disappointed in the way that he dealt with a situation or the way that he answered my prayer. Uh, I never agree that there's such a thing as an unanswered prayer. Um, parents, you know there's no such thing as an unanswered question with your kid. It's just they don't seem to have the ability to hear the word no. Uh, and sometimes as Christians, we, had, we lack the ability to hear the word no. So we say, God never answered my prayer. And God's like, I said no, like a thousand times. I answered that prayer. He just didn't like it. But yeah, if we're being honest, God has disappointed me. I mean, I, I've prayed for things, good things. I've prayed for people to be healed. And they weren't healed. I was disappointed. I just want to be real with you. I don't want to you know, have this fake Christianity where I say, oh yeah, God is so good. He's never let me down. He's let me down. 
but I don't think that has anything to do with his character. As I've grown in Christ, I've realized that has a lot more to do with my perspective or my expectations of him. Today we're going to be talking a lot about the sinking fear of disappointment. Many of us have it. Many of us have experienced it. And my argument is probably most of us deal with this on a regular basis, even if we don't acknowledge it. See, as Peter walked on the water toward Jesus, the only non-deity type human being to ever walk on water, there is no question he was assaulted by fear. The scriptures are pretty clear. They say he uh, was terrified, and we just want to read this account again as we look at the sinking fear of disappointment. Matthew chapter 14, if you want to follow along in your own copy of God's Word, you're, uh, I'd encourage you to do that. We're also uh, going to have it up on the screen, and we're going to be going out of the New Living Translation for the majority of the sermon today. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Now, I just want to pause real quick. It says immediately after this. Do you remember what, was after, what this was after? Feeding of the 5,000. I don't really like that title because it's completely inaccurate. Um, it's 5,000 men. It's probably more like eight to 10,000 people. But yes, Jesus just fed at least 8,000 people with one person's lunch. So he did some pretty cool stuff. They just saw him do some impressive stuff. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. So we can see not once, but twice it tells us that Peter was terrified. First when they saw Jesus for the first time, and then as Peter fought that fear, got out of the boat, began to walk on the water, saw the wind and the waves, and then was terrified again. So uh, he struggled with fear. They all did. Um, nobody was beyond fear that evening it's, uh, from what the scriptures tell us. But what did that fear look like for Peter? What was he afraid of? I think we, we've talked about this a little bit. I think it, uh, we can only guess at what type of fear or what that fear looked like for Peter, but I think we can make some pretty good educated guesses as to what that looked like. We've talked about how very likely that Peter struggled with the fear of inadequacy as he saw the wind and the waves. They appeared to be stronger and bigger than him, and he didn't feel that he was adequate to deal with them. Last week, we talked about the fear of losing control. Peter was in a situation where he did not have control over his environment. Many of us have felt that way over the last year and a half, especially as if things are out of control and beyond our understanding or ability to control them. 
And today we're going to talk about the possibility that Peter could have had the sinking fear of disappointment. And I think you can argue that pretty clearly because he knew it was Jesus. He knew that Jesus called him to do it. That was very clear. And yet he still began to sink. And so something about his confidence in Jesus caused him to sink. We don't know exactly, again, what that was or what was going through Peter's mind because the Bible doesn't tell us, but my guess is it might be that the fear that maybe the waves were too big for Jesus. Maybe this was too much for him. Or maybe Jesus didn't care enough to save Peter. I don't know what Peter's thoughts were that day. But these are similar to the fears that you'll hear from many people when they talk about evil in the world. If you've never had a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus about evil in the world, you need to to find more people that don't know Jesus because this is a common conversation you will have in the lost world with people who don't know him, who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, It won't take you long to come across somebody who says that God either isn't all-powerful or he isn't all-good. You'll hear that term. Either God's not all-powerful or he's not all-good because if those two were true, if God was all-powerful and he was all-loving or all-good, there wouldn't be evil in the world. That's the rationale that people have gotten to in their understanding of who God is. In other words, they're disappointed with the condition of our world, disappointed in God for not fixing it. In their mind, their understanding of who God is, if he was who they thought he was, then he would fix everything and everything would be good. And their conclusion when they look at the world and they consider God is that God either isn't all-powerful, he doesn't have control over the evil in the world, or he just simply doesn't care. remember having a conversation with one of my brothers and that's the conclusion he came to. His understanding was God is all-powerful. He just doesn't care. He got sick of humanity, and he backed off. And he said, all right, you know what? Fine. Do your own thing. And some people feel that way. I would argue neither of those are true. It's not true that God isn't all-powerful, and it's not true that he doesn't care. He is all-powerful, and he most certainly does care. But this fear comes from somewhere. It doesn't help us to sit there if you have the blessing of having this conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, or maybe somebody who's new in their relationship with Jesus, and they don't understand this. It doesn't help to say, no, you're wrong. How many of you love to hear that? Spouses, you love to hear that from your spouse? No, you're wrong. So how do we have this conversation. Again, one of the things I want to do in this series talking about fear, what I don't want to do is to downplay or to dismiss what is causing the fear. Too often we do that as Christians and we we try to, uh, I guess what I would call fake elevate God and say, oh, God is so good. You don't need to worry about anything. Okay, but I am worried. (laughs) So how do I deal with this situation where I am? It, It would help us to be able to deal with people's fears and engage them where they are instead of just telling them to stop doing what they're doing, stop feeling a certain way. How many, uh, now, I guess this is probably more for the wives, how many of you wives love to be told to stop feeling a certain way? Oh, that feels so good, doesn't it, when they tell you that? Stop feeling that. Yeah, okay, I'll just turn that off. Just turn that feeling off. When we're afraid, when we're feeling that sinking fear, being told to stop doesn't really help. Given a 
path on how to get out of that valley is a lot more helpful. So instead of denying or downplaying the fear of disappointment, we're going to see what God has to say about this fear of disappointment. We're going to talk a little bit about where the fear comes from, and then we're going to talk about how to combat that fear. So first, let's start by talking about where the fear of disappointment comes from. Where does it originate? My argument is going to be it comes from largely from either our past, our perspective, or our pride. That's where the fear of disappointment comes from. Another how many of you question. How many of you have had an experience where someone, someone has failed you? Somebody has disappointed you. Okay, some of you aren't alive uh, because no one's ever disappointed you. Uh, you don't know anybody or you just simply don't like raising your hand. So we already covered that one. See, I think we take those experiences with humanity and we take those into our relationship with God. And we begin to view God very much like we view other people. There's no question, beyond a shadow of a doubt, every, any Christian psychologist will tell you, we will always put certain characteristics from our earthly fathers onto God because his name is Father. He's the Father God, God the Father. So we will put certain attributes from our earthly fathers on him, and a lot of times we need to work through that stuff and to view God not as our earthly father or with, with our earthly father characteristics, but for who he is. And so we take our experiences of people disappointing us, and we kind of put that on God. It's very easy to put that on him. Because we live in a broken world where people disappoint us all the time, we can just assume that God is like that. And it's only a matter of time until he disappoints us. Sometimes we can feel like it's just a matter of time before he disappoints us again. If we're honest, we sit here and say, God has disappointed me. He has let me down. And if you don't deal with that, then that just becomes a reality. How many of you uh, have a relationship, either friend, coworker, or family with somebody that lets you down and you just kind of like, that's just how it is. I just have to live with that. Probably most of us. If we're, hopefully, if you're gracious, you just uh, understand that, well, you know what? I just don't expect much from that person because they're just going to let me down. I know I have that in my life. I have people I know that I just don't expect much from them. I don't lean too heavily on it. I don't get my hopes up too much because I know that they're probably not going to deliver. And sometimes we can do that with God. It's very easy to do that with God. We just don't expect much because we've been disappointed by him in the past, and we've never dealt with that. We've never sat and said, why have I been disappointed in God? Was it a fault in his character, or did it have something to do with me? And so we just don't expect much from him. In some cases, you might still be bitter about a time when, the, when you feel God has disappointed you. You might have a story of deep and painful moments in your life where people have really pulled the rug out from you. They've really let you down, and it's wounded you in deep, deep ways. Some of us have learned, not that it's true, but we've learned this in our experiences, is that everyone will disappoint us at some point or another. Everyone will let us down, and we've included God in that as well. The Word of God, however, says in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. 
Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Doesn't get a whole lot more pointed than this as to who God is. This is dealing with the exact thing we're talking about. Why does God say this? Because we do this. We kind of view him as a man because we try to attribute human characteristics to God because he is God the Father, God the Son. And so we view them in human ways and so we can put this human stuff on them, the human capacity to fail others. How many of you have failed somebody? You've let somebody down. Yeah, we've done it ourselves. We're guilty of it. And so it's very easy to put that on God. The answer to those two questions at the end of that verse are no. If you were wondering, he's never spoken and failed to act. He's never promised and not carried it through. And if you would argue with that, I would argue that should be an introspective moment for you. A moment to look into yourself and say, why do I feel like the God who created everything and the God who is love has let me down? Maybe my expectations were wrong. Maybe my perspective was wrong. But this is in your past, what we're talking about now, that God, you feel that people have disappointed you or God has disappointed you or both. You may be sitting here this morning and say, God has disappointed me, and that's what I want to talk about with the perspective. Were any of you ever, like me, disappointed in God when a relationship didn't work? Whether it was a dating relationship or something like that. No, wow, okay, none of you ever talked to God about a relationship. That's cool. Okay, okay, we have a few hands. Uh, you might not know this about me, but I was uh, engaged twice before I met Jackie. Yes, so I know the, uh, the frustration of being disappointed with God when a relationship falls through, especially one where you're starting to plan to get married and it completely falls through. So I have, in those circumstances, had moments where I was like, what in the world, God? What's going on? This was supposed to be this beautiful thing. We were going to get married and now we're not. I've realized it had a lot more to do with me and my failed perspective. Now, if you ask me, am I still disappointed that God let those relationships fail? Of course not. I'm married. I have two beautiful children. I, I am very happy that God messed those relationships up or that he allowed me to mess them up, more specifically. Many times, given some time, we see a lot more of God's plan. Our perspective begins to shift, and we're no longer disappointed like we were. We were disappointed in a moment about a relationship or about a certain set of circumstances, but all it takes is for us to step back just a little bit, get a little more perspective. We're like, oh, okay, I see. That would have been super dysfunctional. Thank you for getting me out of that. The Bible often encourages us to change our perspective, to stop looking at the, the moment, the temporary, the here and now, and to have a heavenly perspective. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Some of us have been disappointed when God hasn't fixed our mistakes. We've had those moments where, man, we, we made a mess of things. We're like, okay, God, I, I love you. I'm sorry I did this. Fix my mistakes. And God doesn't do it. And we get mad at him. You didn't fix my mistakes. You were supposed to fix everything. Or maybe God didn't remove the consequences of a bad decision that we made. Or maybe many bad decisions that we've made. Proverbs chapter 14, 
Verse 12 says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. We sit there in those moments where we've made bad decisions, we've made mistakes, and we say, God, for you to be a loving God, you'd ha- you have to fix this because this is gonna ruin me if you don't. This is gonna really mess my life up if you don't fix my mistake. And God doesn't do it. And we say, I thought you were a loving God. I thought you loved me. I don't know about you, uh, but I have kids now, and I understand how childish this is of us. Because I've seen it in Killian's face like, I thought you loved me. You would let me do what I want if you love me, Dad. And it's like, man, you don't get it. I just think of how often in my own life, and probably in some of your lives, that we've sat there like a little kid and said, but God, I thought you loved me. And God is saying, I do. You just don't get that what you want, it's not going to be good for you. If God always fixed our mistakes or removed the consequences of our bad decisions, if we're honest, we would just get ourselves into much worse situations because we wouldn't learn that our choices have consequences. Many of us have had to learn choices have consequences. Some of us, it took us a lot longer to figure that out. But it, were, it was the consequences that taught us to make better decisions. And if God just always fixed everything, we would really get ourselves into some messes. That's why it frustrates me so much when certain parents I see around now, I told you I used to work in Target, and I, the, I did the cell phone thing there, and it was right by the toy section. And if you want to see some of the worst parenting that exists on the face of this planet, go hang out in a toy section for a couple hours. And it's like, you got to tell this kid no. They need some consequences. They need some structure to their life or they'll never learn. They're little brats. They're smacking their parents in the face and stuff. I'm like, what in the world? And I didn't have any kids, so it was very easy for me to say, I'm never going to do that. I'm like, I hope I'm never going to do that. But we need the consequences. Yes, they hurt sometimes. Man, they're rough. And yeah, they really mess our life up sometimes. But they teach us to make better choices. And so the most loving thing at times is for God to say, I would love nothing more than to remove these consequences because it's going to be a painful season for you. But I can't because you have to go through this to learn. Now on the other side of that, some of us have been disappointed in God because of true devastating circumstances that have occurred in our life. Maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe where we even prayed for healing for somebody and they still passed away. Somebody who didn't deserve to die or somebody who, it wasn't their time. And we prayed that God would heal them, he would restore them, and God didn't do it. And this isn't necessarily the results of bad decisions or mistakes of any, on anybody's part, but we just might look at it and say, this isn't fair, God. Why would you take this person? Why would you allow them to die? One verse often quoted in circumstances like that is Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according, according to his purpose for them. While this is true, this is truth, it's not always really helpful to somebody who's grieving in one of those circumstances. But I've had that conversation with somebody after a season has passed and they've grieved for a season. And they would say to me, well, pastor, I, I prayed for healing and it never came. 
I'm sorry. But they're in heaven. You, if you were to ask them if they felt better, <laughs> what do you think they'd say? Sometimes the healing doesn't happen in our temporary world. But they step into heaven, and I promise you they're not thinking like, oh, man, I'm in heaven. I'd rather be on earth. I don't think anybody's ever said that. I'm just guessing. No one's ever stepped into heaven and thought, man, I want to go back there where everything's broken and messed up. And so, yeah, we prayed fervently for healing, and God in his loving nature said no and brought them to a place of perfect healing. And that's hard to hear. I know you might be even now grieving in a circumstance where you prayed for healing. I know one of our former elders was just in a situation and many of us prayed for healing. And we can, from a limited perspective, say, God, you failed me. You didn't answer that prayer. But I bet you Mark's up in heaven going, yes, you did. Oh, it's good up here. That prayer was answered in a more eternal way. Maybe we could be honest in that moment with somebody when they are grieving and they feel like God hasn't answered their prayer. Just to be honest and say, I don't know why God didn't answer that prayer the way you prayed it. I don't know why God didn't bring healing in that moment. I don't. I I talking to a pastor friend of mine who lost his three-year-old little girl. I, I don't know why God did that. I don't have a good theological answer for you. I have no answer for you. I can cry with you. I can sit with you because I'm, I'm just as bewildered as you are. Sometimes that's what people need. That's to just be honest, not to throw scriptures at them or try to make up some, some Christianese reason, but to just say, I don't know. His perspective is different from mine. I don't have that heavenly perspective enough to fully understand this. We can accept our limited perspective, yet we can still trust that he is good. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Sometimes that's as much as we can do. Maybe that's as far as we can get is to say, I don't know why, but he is good. We just forcefully shift our perspective back to him. Maybe you struggle with disappointment because of past or because of perspective, but maybe you struggle with it because of pride. Maybe you struggle with this fear because you don't want to lean on anyone, including God. You don't want to be dependent on somebody else. The only person you trust is yourself. You want control. That's why last week's sermon maybe spoke to you pretty heavily because you don't like when things are not within your control. So the thought of putting yourself in a circumstance where you need to trust God or to trust somebody else fills you with fear. You don't like that, and so you avoid those situations. You take pride in being self-sufficient, in counting the ways that you have built up your life. You take pride in all of your accomplishments. You're very happy with the things that you have accomplished in your life, whether it's you've worked hard or you have awards or you have things that show how much you've accomplished. And you find it difficult to turn that off. Now, I resonate with all three of these, but if I'm honest with you, this one is the one that really gets me. 
I find it difficult to trust other people with important things. I don't like to do it. I'd rather do it myself. When I had projects in school, and you had to, everybody loved that, you know, when you had to pair up with other people who, in my opinion, were always lazy and dumber than me, I just would do it. I'd just do all the work, let them have a good grade, because I don't trust other people. I'd rather do it myself. I don't like to rely on others. I'm being honest with you. That's who I am. So when I read verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Uh, I don't like this. I don't like that, those verses. I don't like to know that we're not sufficient in ourselves for anything, that we have to rely on God for everything. This has been a huge journey of my life since coming to know Christ. I thought God saved me because I was really smart and I was really talented and I was really good at stuff. And I found out that's not true. I struggle with realizing that my sufficiency is not in myself. I've worked hard for what I have. If you know my story, you know I don't come from a really good Christian family where everything was great and everything was good. I've worked really hard. I was super, we were super poor growing up. I always had the dollar shoe uh, dollar store shoes, the ones that lasted about a week, and I had to make them last six months. I consider myself to be pretty talented and a gifted guy. I'd much rather rely on myself than anyone, including God, if I'm being honest. I have to work hard at relying on God because I would rather just do it myself. It's one of the reasons that I respect Paul in the Bible, his story so much. Respect the ability, uh, his ability that at one point in his life, because I definitely, when you look at Paul's early life, I don't think he was here, but at one point in his life, he's able to get to a place where he can write something like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. This is Paul, who was extremely gifted, extremely talented, very good at everything he set his hands to. He says, each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I would love to really actually understand that verse someday. It's a great verse. I can preach on it. But I don't fully understand it yet because, man, when push comes to shove, I will instinctively always rely on myself. It's an effort for me to look to God and say, all right, Lord, I'm pretty sure I'd rather do this myself, but I'm going to lean on you. It's not saying that I don't do that, but, man, it's a lot of work. Some of us struggle with the fear of disappointment because we're afraid that God will disappoint us and it's going to make us look bad. I know one of the core values of the Alliance is achieving God's purposes means taking faith-filled risks. This always involves change. That's one of our core values as the Alliance. And I don't like that. I don't like taking faith-filled risks because that means I've got to step out into a place where if it fails, God doesn't look silly, but I do. And I, that gives me a little bit of anxiety. But that's what God calls us to as believers. He will often and frequently call us into places where if we fail, we look pretty silly. 
And sometimes God will allow us to fail and look silly on purpose because we need that. We need humbled. Man, it's frustrating for me when I try something and it fails. I don't like that because I immediately think, I failed! And sometimes I have to have to think, all right, Lord, what's next? That didn't work out. I looked kind of silly. Let's move on. Whether we succeed or fail, some of us, we'd rather it be on our terms. And so we're already expecting disappointment, and so we never actually lean on God in the first place. And so we're frequently disappointed. Because when we do fail, we kind of think, all right, God, where were you on that one? Even though we never invited him to the party in the first place. So, how do we combat this fear of disappointment when our past, our perspective, and our pride threatens to sink us? Well, last week, we talked about the fear of losing control. I gave you four steps to, to look at and to consider. This week, I have five for you. The first step is the same as last week's, which is remember. Remember who God is and what he's done. It's the same as the, when you're struggling with the fear of control, is to simply remember who is God. 1 John four sixteen says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in god and god lives in them who is god god is love that's who he is what has god done who is he what has he done john three sixteen. most of you know this for this is how god loved the world he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life that's what he's done he's secured us eternal life No one could possibly do anything more for us. He has done the ultimate. He has secured eternal life for us. Those of us who were bound for eternal death in hell, he has offered us heaven. So remember, who is God and what has he done? That's our first step. Our next one, a little different from last week's, surrender. If we want to deal with the, dis, uh, the fear of disappointment, we need to surrender. Surrender our insecurities from people that have disappointed us. So surrender our insecurities from when we feel like God has disappointed us or that he may disappoint us in the future. We need to surrender our self-sufficiency. And when I say we, I really mean me, but you can do that too. Surrender our self-sufficiency. When the enemy tries to remind us of how often that people have disappointed us, When the enemy tries to remind us how gifted, how talented we are and that we would just be better off if we did it ourselves, we need to surrender that. And remember a verse like James 4, 7. It says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I can tell you, anyone else who struggles with the self-sufficiency part, it works. When you fight that that urge to want to lean on yourself and just do it on your own and only include God in it if it really begins to go downhill. Resist the enemy and he will flee and it becomes easier to lean into God and to lean into that desperate dependency we have on the Holy Spirit. Our next step is evaluate. So remember, surrender, and then evaluate. What is it about my past, my perspective, or my pride that is causing me to doubt God? Because if I'm doubting him, there is a reason. And if all we do is say, oh, well, I'm just a bad Christian, that doesn't really help us. 
but to sit and say, okay, where is this coming from? Is this coming from my past, my perspective, my pride? Why do I doubt God? Because most of us would probably say, I know in my brain that God is all-powerful. I know that he is all-good, and yet still I have anxiety about this. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Now, this is a great, these verses are great if you're really serious about this. Because if you pray this and you genuinely pray this, God will put his finger on something. And that's when it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't like that at all. You just had to go and point that out, didn't you, God? Now it's time to deal with that. And by deal with that, I don't mean, for those of you like me, to work on it on your own and try to force that out of your life. It means we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit because he is the only one that can remove these things from our life. And we watch as he begins to remove that. We put in every effort, like the Bible says, and we trust that God will do the actual work of removing these things from our life as he searches us and points out things. He illuminates things. Those of you, which, again, most of you have said you've known Christ for over 20 years. This should be a regular pattern of your life at this point where you regularly sit before him and say, okay, God, what's next? What do you want to put your finger on this time? Where do we want to go in my life next? What needs rooted out now? And as he begins to remove that stuff, all of a sudden, those of you that have walked with Christ for a while, you know, it seemed like when you first were a Christian, it's like, man, all I got to do is like stop smoking and stop cursing, and man, I'm going to be a great Christian. 20 years later, you're like, man, I got like a list of 30 things just right now that I'm working on. And I dealt with 30 last year, and it just seems like they keep multiplying. I feel like a worse Christian now than I did when I first got, came to know Christ. That's growth. Just the same way as the most talented musician in the world, man, they feel like the worst musician. They can point out more flaws in anything than somebody who's just like me, barely knows what they're doing. Our next step is trust. Trust that God has a plan and that he won't let us down. One of my favorite stories in scripture is a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which one day might be the name of my coffee shop, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know. I'm stealing that. I saw it somewhere, and I was like, that is awesome. But there's a story of these three guys, and they're, they've been taken into captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar has made this big image of himself, a big statue uh, made out of gold, and it's him, and he's told everyone that when the music plays, they need to bow down and they need to worship this because Nebuchadnezzar was a narcissist, and he really thought he was the best thing that ever happened to the world, and, and so he has this thing, and they all gather, they gather everybody together, and they start to play this music, and these three guys aren't having it. They're, they believe strongly they can't worship anything but the one true God, and so they say they're not going to do it. And I love what they say when Nebuchadnezzar says, man, if you guys don't do this, I'm throwing you into a fiery furnace. And I will will kill you. You're going to go right in this furnace. And we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 uh, 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. I love this. There's that faith. There's that trust. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Now, if you know this story, this is awesome because you have to understand, look at what they say next. But even if he doesn't, 
we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, our God is able to save us. And one way or another, we're gonna be out of your power. Whether that's God shows up in the furnace or we go to heaven. Either way, you've got no control over us and we will not bow to you. They're willing to die. And I love that their understanding of God is not that he's some vending machine. That, well, if we pray and we ask God to keep us safe, then that's exactly what he's gonna do. They say, God is able most certainly. He could do it easily. But if, if we die in this furnace, we just want you to know you didn't win, that my God is still good. Our God still saved us from you and will never bow. And so I love that their, their faith in God is not that they get exactly what they want the way they want it. And what's awesome about this is God does exactly what they want. They, they are thrown into this furnace and they walk around never even smelling like smoke. So God answers their prayer, I, I believe, because of their tremendous faith, that they were willing, even if it didn't go the way they wanted, they still trusted in God. And our last step is the same step as last week, as the last step, which is repeat, because these fears won't go away. They will continue to come. The enemy will continue to speak these things over us and continue to try to trip us up by convincing us that God is just going to disappoint us. So we repeat it as often as we need. How many of you would say you trust God with your eternal life? Your eternity is, is secure in him. Good. I hope that's true. If not, go back and listen to that last song we sang. Let me tell you about my Jesus. So many of us trust God with our eternity. Yet some of us still struggle trusting God with our day-to-day activities. We trust that one day when we leave this world, if we were to die, we would enter heaven and we would live for all of eternity. That's a big trust that we're putting in him. And yet we don't trust him with our finances. We don't trust him with our kids. We don't trust him with you fill in the blank there. We still find it difficult to trust him with that stuff. And there is no, this is not a shame on you kind of idea. This is a open our eyes to it. Hopefully, God has illuminated an area that maybe you weren't aware of that existed in your life, whether it was there was past disappointment from God that you never dealt with or the reality that you struggle with this fear of disappointment or possible future disappointment from God. And my goal is certainly not that you would feel shame about that, but that you would say, oh, okay, God, can you help me with this? Because just like every other fear we've talked about, the beautiful thing about God is that even when Peter messed it all up and he got it all wrong, he says, save me, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs his hand. And so the great part is you can mess all five of these steps up. Just learn how to say, help me, Lord. Help me. I've messed it up again. And he'll pick us up, back up out of that water and we can try again and again and again. That repeat part is so important. We need to not just trust God with our eternity, but with our today. Joshua 1.9 says, This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That night, as Peter walked on the water, Jesus was right there with him. And as we look at Peter's life, as he gets older, as he grows in his maturity in Christ, 
He is so confident as he goes throughout his life. He's willing to die on the cross and, and he ends his life with so much confidence in God. And I can just imagine the moment he steps into heaven without any fear, without any hesitation, him going to his death, knowing God has me. Like I said before, from our first sermon, I really believe if on, on Peter's way to that cross at the end of his life, if there would have been a pool, he'd have skipped and danced across it as he walked to the cross because he really trusted in God come the end of his life. He learned how to do this. And as Joshua 1.9 says, God is with us wherever we go, in the boat, out of the boat, in our relationships, our jobs, our families. He's with us everywhere we go. And unlike people, he will never, ever disappoint us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. There is a reality. You have never disappointed me. I've been disappointed in you, but you've never let me down. You've never spoken and and failed to act. You've never promised and not seen it through. You are eternal, unchanging, unwavering. I thank you that you are all-powerful and yet all-loving. And the reality that evil exists in this world is on us, not on you. And Lord, I thank you that as we go throughout our life, as you call us to certain things, just as you called Peter out onto the water, you will be right there. And even when we mess it all up, when we humble ourselves and call out to you, you will immediately grab our hand and wrap us up and remind us that we are loved because you are love. And just as a father, we might be disappointed at times. We might wish our children did better. But we're so ready to wrap them up in our arms and encourage them and love them and remind them they are loved and their performance has nothing to do with how much we love them. And Lord, I pray we would be reminded of that this week. Also reminded, Lord, that you aren't man. You will never let us down. You will never leave us hanging. Lord, I thank you for the truth that we find in your word, the truth of who you are. Lord, I pray for any of us that deal with this fear of disappointment on a regular basis, Lord, would, we, would you illuminate these things to our hearts? Would we see them for what they are? And would we surrender them to you and continue to walk in faith that we would put ourselves willingly into situations that you call us into that if you don't empower us to do them, we're gonna look pretty silly and that we would continually lean into you and trust you for big things. Lord, I thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week, church.